G'day and welcome to the Constant Investors exclusive radio program, Talking Finance. And this week, it's a resources special. We've got Peter Bevan, the CFO of BHP Billiton. We've got Brandon Munro, the CEO of Bannerman Resources, which is an up-and-coming uranium miner in Namibia. And Bernie Ridgway, the CEO of Imdex, which is a drilling contractor. But let's get stuck straight into it with Daniel Hines, the Chief Commodity Strategist of ANZ, to give us an overview of the commodity markets. Obviously, um, you know, a lot going on in commodity markets. I think clearly the markets themselves are getting a little bit tighter, but the reasons for those are, are quite uh, diverse. I think in the, uh, the energy and oil markets, you're obviously seeing um, producer-led production cuts uh, there having an impact, while in metal markets, you're seeing, uh, I suppose, a combination of, um, of government policies, uh, the capacity reductions in China and bans on exports of certain commodities and others uh, through Asia are um, resulting in the market tightening up at a time when the demand backdrop is actually uh, in starting to improve and we're seeing um, you know, growth return, particularly to emerging markets. Let's just talk about it one at a time now. The oil market, it looks like OPEC has finally made some uh, output restrictions stick. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for the moment, it looks like they're going beyond what they had agreed to in late 2016, in particular Saudi Arabia. But you know, all the other producers, in particular the non-OPEC ones, such as uh, Russia, are also making great inroads into those uh, agreed production cuts. It does look a little bit different to the previous uh, quotas we've seen from that member group, and uh, I think that's you know, the big reason behind why we're seeing everyone get uh, you know, relatively bullish on the uh, on the oil price. So what does that make you think now about the oil price over the next year or two? Well, it's interesting that, uh, you know, while we have obviously those production cuts coming through, we're getting um, a lot of indicators that US output is ready to ramp up as well. So while the OPEC production cuts will significantly reduce global inventories over the next uh, three to six months, I think that the rise or um, reactivation of a lot of US shale oil will ultimately place a cap on prices. You know, we expect to see them push higher, sort of into the mid-60s in 2017. But after that, I think the re-emergence of the US industry will see those prices relatively limited beyond that. What do you think the price cap is? Where is the market in balance? About 65 to $70 a barrel. I think you, start, you would start to see most US shale producers be cash flow positive. So um, I think yeah, that'll be a, a natural sort of uh, cap on prices. Not to say that we could see them go a little bit higher. And certainly the prospect of OPEC cutting production uh, more for, for longer raises that opportunity. But I think in essence, we'll see um, you know, that relatively high cost flexible producer in the shale industry really uh, hold prices in those mid to high 60s. Just on the iron ore now, you've written recently that Chinese steel mill profitability is driving the iron ore price higher. Explain what's going on there. Yeah, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but for the moment, a lot of the capacity reductions that we're seeing in the Chinese steel industry are from either illegal operations or relatively inefficient ones. And as a result, the net impact on raw material requirements hasn't changed too drastically. In the meantime, the tightening of, of that steel industry is actually pushing those prices up, as you've said, and that is giving steel producers the confidence to first restock because the inventories were relatively low, and then 
to, in fact, increase uh, production where they can with the relatively positive uh, macro backdrop that they're seeing come through now, particularly in the domestic market there. Well, to what extent is the Chinese steel industry and therefore Australia's iron ore industry tied to the Chinese property market? Yeah, well, nearly half of all steel goes into the sector, so it's obviously very important. And uh, I suppose that is our number one risk to the uh, the steel and iron ore prices over the next couple of years. You know, they've obviously brought in some measures to cool down the uh, price rises they've seen in the property sector there, and that could, I suppose, limit demand for steel and iron ore going forward. But you know, as inventories in the housing sector come back to more sort of uh, sustainable levels, which we think will happen over the next 12 to 18 months, it does then provide a better platform for those uh, for that sector to start uh, recovering again. So ultimately, we think demand from that sector should be positive. Do you think that the current price of iron ore, around about seven or eighty dollars a ton, do you think that's sustainable now? Uh, look, it's certainly at our top of the range sort of uh, scenario. So I, I suspect, you know, the risks are slightly skewed to the downside for the moment. Certainly, you know, the chances of domestic Chinese iron ore uh, coming back into the market are relatively high now. And obviously those concerns about steel demand longer term will, will weigh on the sector as well. So look at these levels of 80 even $90 a tonne. I think um, it's hard to see any further significant upside from here, but at the moment, you know, I can't see too much downside either. On coal, there's been a massive rise last year. It was quite extraordinary. Come back a bit, but still pretty high. You would have thought coal's future was limited, but actually it's fine. You have to distinguish, I guess, between metallurgical coal and steaming coal. Yeah, two different dynamics there, certainly on, on thermal. Obviously, the long-term dynamics are going against it uh, with China's energy mix resulting in coal's market share falling quite significantly. But despite that, the absolute levels required are still going to increase. So it's certainly not the end for coal, but I think the dynamics around, once again, capacity closures of coal uh, mines in China are also playing their part and resulting in import demand staying relatively high. I mean, the latest issue to hit the market was obviously the um, ban of North Korean um, imports into China. And while they're relatively low compared to total uh, consumption there, and they make up more than 10% of imports. So the seaborne market will be impacted and we'll see further support on, on prices as a result of these types of government policies or um, you know, political, political issues around the country impacting uh, the supply of commodities. So overall, do you think that we're at the beginning of a long upcycle in commodities or is that uh, too early to call that? Well, I think the macro environment is still a little bit fragile and we're not expecting to see growth return to the levels that we've seen over the past decades. It certainly isn't conducive to commodity markets rallying to the levels we saw in the previous cycle. But supply side issues are quite significant at the moment and certainly markets are tightening up. We're at the start of an upturn in in the sector. But the upside, I suppose, as I said, is a little bit more limited than we've seen in the past. But clearly still positive, and I think commodity producers in particular will be relatively happy with how things have progressed and we think will progress over the next couple of years. BHP share price has been falling in the last couple of days, even though they came out with a very good result. And it certainly isn't Peter Bevan's fault, the CFO of BHP Billiton, who spoke to me this week. 
I think what I like best about the result is the efficiency of how we've managed to convert the higher prices that we saw in the last six months directly into free cash flow. I think that's really, really great. In fact, it wasn't just a story about higher prices. We added $1.2 billion from yet further productivity. And uh, given that we are spending capital, you know, I think very efficiently at the moment, we managed to produce uh, almost $6 billion of free cash flow, which is tremendous for everybody. How much more leverage have you got in the past three or four years as you and Andrew have been been changing the company? What's the difference in leverage to the prices to previously, to what it was before? Nice way to describe this. The last time we made the margins that we made, we made a 54% EBITDA margin this half. And the last time we did that, we had prices that were on average 50% higher than they are today. So I think that just gives you a sense of, one, that the margin is very high, but two, just how much productivity has enabled us to take advantage of these prices. One other thing I just thought I'd also add is that, you know, this isn't a result about iron ore. Now, iron ore is a fantastic business for us, no doubt about that, but also very strong contributions from across the board, coal, petroleum, and copper. You know, the diversified model is really working very well for us. In fact, your business is now roughly 40% iron ore and 20% copper, coal, and petroleum. Isn't that right? Exactly, exactly. Amazingly neat. 2020, 20 and 40. That's exactly right. What have been the secrets to the improvement in productivity over the past few years? What are the main things you've done? And to what extent is it robotics? It's the whole organization, you know, collectively making that decision culturally to we need to get our cost base under control. So getting the costs lower, but at the same time, getting more and maximum out of what we've already installed. So the, we've got a very large capital base. It's getting better utilizations, availabilities, and so on. And that is a bottom-up exercise. Now, we have done some top-down things. We've de-bottlenecked a large part of our, our major assets and so on. Those have been fantastic projects. But really, it's the best ideas come from the folks on the floor, and it's been able to mobilize those ideas and, then if, and uh, actually execute it. That's what's made the difference and collectively delivered over $11 billion over the last four years, and that's something spectacular. It is a great workforce we have here. $11 billion of what? Of, of cost savings? It's a combination of better volumes as well as lower costs. I would also say that our, our contractors and our partners in the where we buy all our goods and services from have also contributed very strongly. Obviously, we've had to get lower prices from them too. So I think it's been a, a great collective effort. And how much of that was in the latest half year? Uh, $1.2 billion in, in the last uh, half year. So is that it? I mean, is, do you think you've gone as far as you can go on that score? No, not at all. I mean, this year we're guiding, this financial year, we're guiding $1.8 billion, So we've certainly, we've knocked over the best part of that already in the half, but uh, there's more to go. Look, we're still not uh, running everything across the world uh, on this same high standard. So we've got areas which will run at better availability, better utilization. We know where those gaps are, and we know where, how what we have to do to close them so that everybody operates on the, the same best practice across the world. And so we're excited by the gap. We're not frightened by the gap. We're not, and that's really, I think, our, our simplified operating model post-SARS-32 uh, demerger is really helping us get a, a much more global focus on achieving best practice. So, so plenty still to come. I guess one of the challenges of a team such as yours that has done so much in productivity and cost reduction is to achieve some growth now. I just wonder where you're going to get that from. How are you going to go about it? Now, I know that you and your finance team 
are actually focused on capital allocation now. How are you going about finding growth projects? Alan, I think we've got plenty across the near term, the medium term, the long term, across all of our commodities. And in fact, we've got additional things that we've been adding in through exploration. We've had a great exploration success in the Gulf of Mexico and Trinidad Tobago this last few months. And of course, we acquired uh, the Trion resource in Mexico from the Mexican government. So, so we're adding yet more to what we've got. I think that you know we've got the debottlenecking projects in particular in the in the, the near term, which are very very cheap from a capital perspective, but create a huge amount of value. Those are going to drive with shale. We're going to put more rigs very very judiciously with hedging to make sure we cover the downside. Shale is working for us again. And of course, we're starting to uh, we approve those major projects again. We just approved Mad Dog 2 in the Gulf of Mexico, and we're looking forward to Spence growth option later in this calendar year. So plenty to come in terms of growth. I think we're very well placed. What's your view about the future of prices, in particular iron ore, but also the others? So iron ore has been a very interesting play for the last uh, year or so. I mean, I think we were all surprised on the upside by the impact of stimulus that the Chinese government put into the economy, particularly in terms of housing infrastructure, obviously pulled forward some demand for steel. In addition to that, there was a restocking cycle in both steel as well as in iron ore. But at the same time, what happens there is you can see the early signs of the stimuli starting to fade in housing. And of course, restocking cycles always have an end. The growth in demand for iron ore is tailing off. And at the same time, we're seeing low-cost tons come back into the market, certainly from Australia, also from places like India. But really, the majority of this is coming from very low tons out of Brazil. So a combination of slowing demand and increasing uh, supply means that all the fundamentals are pointing towards, you know, sorry, certainly by the second half of this year to lower iron ore prices. But, you know, they are what they are today and we're very happy with that. And we are, as I say, converting that into cash uh, very, very efficiently. And what's the plan with regard to the dividend? You've increased the dividend, you've put another 10 cents on the table this time. Do you think you'll be going back towards more than 50% payout? Well, we've did more than 50% payout this time. And in fact, we did it the last two times as well. So that's really been our track record because our cash flow generation is stronger than in fact our profit generation. It's just the quirk of how the depreciation versus the capex at the moment. You know, I think that we have got, we continue to have a bias to lowering debt. We knocked over $6 billion of net debt in this half alone. So we're making tremendous progress in that regard, but we still want to make the balance sheet, the very strong balance sheet, even stronger. Uh, so we continue to have a bias to lowering the net debt. Once we get that debt under control, we shouldn't expect a huge increase in capex from where we are today. So therefore, once we've got to that endpoint on the balance sheet, we've got the growth capital uh, already guided. The rest will go back to shareholders. But when we get there, we'll make that decision and, and we will announce what we have to announce at that point. <laughs> Now let's hear from Brandon Munro, the CEO of Bannerman Resources. They've got a uranium deposit in Namibia. The uranium price has been rising in the last couple of months, so it's worth having a look at. I asked Brandon why Bannerman's share price took off like a rocket in January. I think the share price appreciation was more about investors starting to recognise that uranium did bottom at the end of last year and that there was a value buying opportunities in Bannerman and for that matter other uranium stocks that have been very heavily oversold over the last couple of years. Yeah, it's been a terrible few years for the uranium business. In fact, it felt like 
the uranium market died in Fukushima. Look, there's no doubt that Fukushima was a setback and the single biggest impact that it had was to stall the growing recognition that was building until 2011 that nuclear plays an extremely important role in climate change policy and realistically without nuclear short-term answers to the climate change predicament that the world faces are just not realistic. We're starting to see that sentiment come back and we've had a number of very prominent environmental commentators start to recognise the role that nuclear simply has to play. So that's the disappointing part, but as a planet, with our ability to deal with climate change, we've been stalled by about five years by Fukushima, but we're optimistic that that's coming back now. And as you say, the price of uranium has been going up in the last couple of months. How kind of solid do you think that rise is? What does the market feel like to you? It still feels very undervalued. We need to bear in mind that $25, which is where uranium is at the moment, only a few months ago felt like a floor that was very hard to breach. So it has come back, but it's come back from an inconceivable low of $17, which was based and caused by a very low liquidity in the spot market at a time when there was significant selling. So structurally, the uranium price is still at a level where a large proportion of producers around the world are underwater and the marginal cost of increasing pounds of uranium production around the world, it's still a factor above what the current uranium price is. Is anyone profitable at this price? There are profitable producers and they fall into two categories. There are in-situ recovery mines in Kazakhstan that are profitable at current prices, but probably only just when you take into account their sustaining capex. And then the other category, producers around the world who are still achieving a blended price based on contracts that were written even pre-Fukushima. So that's what's enabling the sector to continue operating. They might be delivering into 65, 70 or even $75 contracts still that were written in those days. What we will see as a catalyst for a recovery is as those producers start to roll off those long-term contracts, they're going to be more and more exposed to the current spot price. And there's very few producers outside of the very high-grade Canadian mines and the in-situ recovery mines in Kazakhstan that are in a position to cover costs at the current spot price. Tell us a bit about the Atango deposits you've got in uh, Namibia. When was that discovered? In 2006, and Bannerman's been solely focused on that project ever since. And even during the very tough times that we've had, we've continued to developed the engineering studies. We completed a DFS in 2012. We obtained our environmental clearances for that in the same year. And we've just spent the last two years undertaking a pilot plant. And it's as a result of that that we're able to update the DFS. So we've managed to distinguish ourselves from many participants in our sector because we've stayed focused and we've stayed at the wicket and continued to move the project forward. So do you need a price higher than $25 a pound or could you start the mine at this price? No, we do need higher prices and that's consistent with virtually every developer in the world at the moment. And there's only a couple of exceptions to that and the exceptions tend to be small producers that can't have a lot of impact on supply. So the term price at the moment 
is about $35 a pound. The reason I hesitate is that there's very little movement and volume going through term contracting right now. We've got a, a stall where producers aren't willing to commit future production at those sort of prices, and equally utilities are reluctant to commit to term contracts at a significant premium to the current low spot price. So if we assume that the term price is $35, we need it to roughly double for us to be a, a financially attractive project. Oh, you need $70 a pound? Yes, we do. In recent history, we saw the term price spend a significant amount of time at $95 a pound. Uh, that was 2006-2007. We also saw the spot price hit a high of $136 after spending more than six months above $110 a pound. But if you look across history at real uranium prices rather than just nominal, during the last structural boom in uranium, which occurred about 20 years ago, we saw a period of more than four years of uranium sitting above $140 a pound in real terms. And it's really been the structural changes to the industry caused by the collapse of the Soviet Union that's led to a long-term bear market since then. What about volume? Do you need, in order for the demand to be there, do you need more nuclear power stations to be built? And they are being built. What we've got in the sector is a fairly well-discussed supply deficit emerging from 2020-2021. And we are in structural deficit at the moment. So as I'm sure you know, the amount of uranium being mined around the world is less than the amount of uranium being consumed around the world in nuclear power stations. I did not know that. Sorry. I just didn't realise that. So there's a deficit now. Yeah, there is a deficit now. However, it's being made up through secondary supplies. About half of that is a concept called underfeeding, which is caused by excess capacity in the enrichment sector. And in simple terms, that means that after Fukushima, about 10% of the world's reactors no longer needed to push their material through the full nuclear fuel cycle from U308 ultimately to enriched uranium that's fabricated for nuclear power plants. Now, most of the balance of the surplus, which of the secondary supply, which has put the market into surplus, has come from Russian sales of government inventory and the US sales by the Department of Energy of US inventory. Now, we think that the Russians have largely, if not totally, curtailed their sales of inventory. However, it's a bit hard to get data for that. On the other hand, the US have a very transparent process, which is sometimes called the Department of Energy barter transaction. And Trump administration has identified that as an area that they would look at because A, it's putting pressure on the struggling US uranium sector for the reasons I described, and also because there's questions over the legality of the bartering arrangement that the Department of Energy has been engaged with. Right. So in summary, what we see is that modest deficit that we're in at the moment gapping out into a very significant structural supply deficit by 2019. And in our modelling, we don't foresee that secondary supplies will be able to keep up with that deficit with the resulting breakout in 2020 and in particular 2021. So when does your planning have Itango uh, producing uranium? It'll take three years for us to construct and commission the mine to achieve ramp-up. 
and we would work with about a two-year financing period. If we see a catalyst in uranium in the very near term, then we can accelerate that. Otherwise, on our modelling, we see that prices at a structural level will need to adjust in a maximum window of 24 months, so the end of 2018. However, as I say, we're following about six different catalysts, any one of which could bring forward and amplify a price correction in the meantime. But you also seem to be seeing uranium and Bannerman as a climate change stock in a way. Very much so. If you look at what the world needs to achieve, A, for climate change, but more particularly what China needs to achieve for air pollution, I just can't see how China or the rest of the world can do that without a very much increasing role of nuclear. Are they building nuclear power stations now? They are. So China's got 20 power stations in construction, 20 reactors, I should say, in construction. They turned on five new reactors last year. And to put that in a little bit of perspective, their current output when we add up those recent reactors is about 34 gigawatts of power. They're looking to increase that to 58 gigawatts by 2020 and somewhere between 120 and 150 gigawatts of output by 2030. So it's a relatively strong growth profile. However, in our modelling, as I mentioned, we believe that that 2030 number is going to need to look significantly higher than that because of leakage from hydro in particular, but also the potential shortcomings on upscaling their um, wind and solar programs to the extent that I just described. And what I would say overlaying all of that is the successful addressing of China's air pollution is just simply non-negotiable for the administration. But are the risks that were exposed by Fukushima being adequately addressed? I believe they are. Obviously, as a uranium producer, we need to spend quite a bit of time rubbing shoulders with the upstream nuclear industry. And there's a very strong recognition across all of the major players in nuclear that the industry just simply cannot tolerate any further question marks over its safety. And we have seen a very significant response in reactor design, but also retrofitting of safety features to the existing reactor fleet around the world. And what we need to bear in mind, Alan, is that the uh, all of the nuclear power plants that have had incidents associated with them were an early style of technology. Um, the the technology being built around the world and the retrofitting safety features of the existing nuclear fleet have very significantly upgraded the original safety features that were built into those types of plants. For example, they've introduced a number of passive cooling features, which would have meant that Fukushima Daiichi reactors simply wouldn't have gone progressed into a meltdown. What sort of uh, funding will Bannerman require to get the mine going? a very, very large project. In fact, the largest project in the world that isn't already producing yellow cake. So with that comes a significant capital cost. According to our DFS, that's $793 million, although we are reducing that with the DFS work that we're undertaking at the moment. It's worth bearing in mind from an investor's perspective that the nuclear industry, a bit like oil and gas, is an industry of very, very large capex. 
So to put that $793 million into some sort of perspective, the number of nuclear reactors that our mine could service in terms of constant output of uh, nuclear fuel has a capital cost of about $90 billion. So what I'm saying there is that in some sort of a strategic partnership or vertically integrated scenario, we don't regard the capital cost as being a problem at all. Naturally, for a company that's listed on the ASX, that level of capital requirement is a concern for investors. However, as I say, we believe that through a strategic partnership, we'd be able to address that without undue dilution of shareholders. Mining services companies have had a terrible time over the last few years as the mining industry construction boom came to an end. One of those is Imdex, whose CEO is Bernie Ridgway. I started our interview by asking Bernie what Imdex does and who its customers are. We service the resource sector, Alan, and resource companies are filling holes. They, they want to know what's down there, and we can tell them what it is and where it is, and we can do that in real time or semi-real time. So we can give them the chemical analysis and the mineralogy of, of what's down there. We can tell them location because you know we have the downhole survey equipment that they use to tell them the exact location of the hole. We've got a cloud solution so they can get the information from the field into the office in real time or semi-real time. Now that's a fairly recent development in terms of the cloud solution but the oil and gas industry has been in that world for the last 15 years and the minerals industry is pretty conservative but they are now moving to a situation where instead of dealing with uh, information that's weeks or months old, uh, you know, they can have it in real time or semi-real time. Now, MDX listed back in 87. I've been EMD since mid-2000, so been there a fair while, and we've changed the business to where we're a global business these days. You know, we're the technology market leader in the business. There wouldn't be one large resource company out there that's not using us in one way, shape, or form. We're in a position where the... Minerals industry is in a new upcycle. It's a cyclical business, and and now we've got a cyclical upswing that's definitely started and gaining momentum. How does Imdex go about charging for the services? Largely, we rent equipment to the industry, and uh, when you're drilling holes, you need drilling fluid, so that cools and lubricates the drill head, returns cuttings to the surface, and keeps the hole open. You had a good year in uh, 2016. The share price went from um, 20 cents to 70 cents or something like that. The share price was overdone. I think, you know, you've been around the markets a long time and generally we sort of overshoot on the downside and overshoot on the upside. And I think, you know, we were sort of overdone on the downside. But historically, our earnings have been tied to the cycle. We're doing things to change that. But, you know, the share price has had a decent run. We announced our first half results yesterday and, you know, our revenue was up 10% on uh, the PCP and EBITDA was up something almost 70% on the PCP. So, Profits are returning, and you know we've got a lot of operating leverage to the cycle. So, in a sort of early calendar twelve, the share price was three twenty eight, and market cap over six hundred. And today we've got a market cap of around about two thirty. So, there's a lot we can do in this up cycle to generate increased profits. And one of the things we're doing is getting more involved in the mining phase of the project life cycle to make our earnings more sustainable and then more predictable, I guess. You also restructured your balance sheet last year. I don't fully understand what happened there. Perhaps you can take us through it because you've booked a, a charge of $16 million against your profit, yep. which which meant that you reported a loss. But it looks like Correct. that cost of $16 million was 
to refinance a $34 million loan from Bain Capital, which seems to me extraordinary. With that financing that took place in Canada 15, Alan, that was with Bain Capital, they were known as Sankey back then. You know, they were charging 10.75% was the uh, was the interest rate at that time. But there was also 37 million warrants. So of that 16.2 million, about 11 million was non-cash. And that was to do with the accounting for the warrants. So if you talk to the accountants about accounting for those things, then um, you have to charge or amortise that against your profit. So we paid that facility out in December last year. That was a painful experience. We had gross debt of $54 million, which um, was financed by Bain Capital. We paid them out. We're now at a bank West facility, which is a much more traditional, low-cost facility, less than 5% interest, and all the charges in relation to the Bain Capital facility have been brought to account. That was terribly painful. Crikey. I mean... Yeah. It was, Alan, and if you lived through it, uh, like we did, we had a club facility with HSBC and Westpac, and... You know, they wanted to lighten off their exposure to mining services back in Calendar 15. We advised them we were going to be in breach of the covenant because of what was happening in the oil and gas part of the business as it was then. It's no longer now. And then they sort of used that then to seek a fairly significant repayment of the facility, which wasn't due until December 16. So, you know, they put us in a position when the cycle was weak. This is in 2015. Uh, to, so that's when you had to go to Brain. Yeah, that's right. We sorted all that out late last year by raising $45 million equity in the market, and uh, that gave us the ability with the cash we had plus the Bank West facility to pay out Bain, get rid of that 10.75% uh, interest cost. But we had to account for the warrants, and that's what you're seeing in that result for the half. But there's also a $5 million cash payment, wasn't there, a penalty? There was, an early repayment penalty to get rid of Bain. We'd rather uh, take the medicine and uh, and move on, and we're in a great world now where... We've got a low-cost facility that's only partly drawn. We've got net cash on the balance sheet. We're strongly structured to support the growth of our business going forward. So that's a good position for us to be in. And how does the business look now? It looks really good, Alan. I think, you know, I've been around this minerals industry for a long time, and this cycle, when we did our full-year results last year, in August last year, FY16, there was a recovery occurring, but it was mainly around gold, so it was pretty narrow. Sitting here today... We've got a much broader base recovery. You know, we've seen increase in base metal prices. We've seen an increase in the bulks. Iron ore, no one predicted iron ore at above $90 a tonne. So there's lots of activity out there. And all the companies that I've seen, without exception, have increased exploration budgets for Canada 17. So they're back out there. You know, they've been depleting reserves at a faster rate than they're replacing them. So if they don't want to go out of business, they've got to find... Uh, new reserves, and, and that's the situation we've got. What's MDEX's main exposure? Mainly to uh, gold and copper, so that would be 70% of our revenue is associated with those two commodities. And then if you take gold and combine it with base metals, that's about 80% of the exploration spend that's going on. So really it's a gold and copper story. So if you're believing those two commodities, then MDEX is well positioned to benefit from the expenditure that's taking place. Today is the 83rd anniversary of the death of Edward Elgar, one of the great composers of all time, and of course his cello concerto is one of my absolute favourites, especially when it's played by Jacqueline Dupre.
Thanks to the constant team and thanks to ISM Studios for writing and performing the music. I'll see you in your inbox on Saturday morning. Thank you.